Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining me for the next episode in our year-end toolkit series, a series of episodes designed to help you through the year-end close. And even if you're not at year-end, don't change the channel. This information is relevant no matter when your year-end occurs, and some of the advice may help you get ahead in your process. Also, for those of you not directly involved in the close, Today's episode will give you an appreciation for the broad accounting environment we're in right now, specifically how macroeconomic conditions are impacting accounting fundamentals. Today, I'm joined by Beth Paul, Brett Dooley, Kyle Moffat, and Pat Durbin, all national office leaders and frequent guests on our podcasts and webcasts. The topic, what's top of mind for each of these leaders as they think about the year-end close. This is going to be a fast-paced but insightful conversation, and there's something here for everyone. We'll also leave you with a playbook of resources you can find in the show notes, including our summary of accounting considerations in uncertain times and links to many of our comprehensive accounting guides, including financial statement presentation, business combinations, PP&E, and stock compensation, as well as numerous related podcasts. So with that, let's get to it. So Pat, Beth, Brett, Kyle, so nice to have you with me for some year-end reminders for our listeners as they prepare for their year-end reporting. And obviously, there's been so much going on from a macroeconomic um, perspective, as well as geopolitical, as well as supply chain and everything else, and lots of things there that will impact year-end reporting. So where I thought we'd start was rising interest rates. And clearly, we saw the Fed raise rates several times uh, during 2022 to curb inflation. And that obviously has an impact on a lot of different areas of financial reporting. And then that in turn can put pressure on valuations, which in turn can lead to impairment. So lots of sort of knock on effects there. We'll talk about financial assets later in the podcast. But Beth, that'd be great to start with you and talk about non-financial impairment. What reminders would you give as you look at your end? Well, the economic environment largely impacts companies' goodwill impairment testing in two ways. First, inflationary costs and supply chain disruption could put pressure on cash flow forecasts. Second, assuming all else stays equal, higher interest rates will result in lower fair values. So companies that are expecting these negative impacts on cash flows may not be able to apply the step zero or the qualitative test for their annual goodwill impairment and really just need to move on to the quantitative test. Or these negative cash flow impacts could just result in a trigger if it's not the time for their annual goodwill impairment test. We're also seeing, um, given the continued increase in interest rates, that some companies are going to need to end up with multiple quarters of goodwill impairments. And the reason for that is, you know, once you have one impairment, your fair value and carrying value are now the same, and any future change in fair value results in additional impairment charges. And then maybe one final reminder in that space, if you do have a goodwill impairment and you have tax-deductible goodwill, you're going to need to consider the simultaneous equation method to figure out the amount of goodwill impairment. Because every time you take a goodwill impairment, you result in a deferred tax asset, which increases the carrying value, which would result in an additional impairment. So the simultaneous (laughs) equation solves for that. Uh, So Beth, just as a a touch on what you just said, because I think your point on the multiple impairments is such a great reminder. How, when 
companies, when you're dealing with these situations, what do companies disclose in that case? Do they just say it's the impact of interest rates, changing environment? And I know, obviously, it's fact-specific, but I'm sure you get this question. Right. So it does depend on what's the reason. But yes. oftentimes, once you have that situation where your fair value is equal to your carrying value, you're going to ensure that you have good disclosure in your critical accounting estimate section that talks about what are the inputs that could impact your cash flows or your fair value and result in additional impairments. And so they've got sort of that foreshadowing disclosure. And then when they have the impairment, they can highlight, you know, these events that could impact us have occurred. And in fact, we have additional impairments. All right. So Beth, that was Goodwill. And I know often when we talk non-financial impairment, people sort of stop with Goodwill and forget that there's actually a different model for long-lived assets. So what reminders do you have on the long-lived asset side? Right. So first, there are two models for long-lived assets, a held-for-sale model and a held-for-use model, but maybe focusing on the held-for-use model. That is a test that is applied at the asset group level, and it's a two-step test, right? So the first step is the recoverability test, and you compare your carrying value of your asset group to undiscounted cash flows. And if the undiscounted cash flows are greater than the carrying value, there's no need to move on to step two, which would compare the carrying value to the fair value. So sometimes that first step, that recoverability test, will in fact shield an impairment. You know that if you could get through it, there'd be an impairment, but that's not how the model works, so you can't ignore step one. The other reminder is many people have not had to think about asset group and long-lived asset impairments. And since they maybe last thought about it, we now have the right-of-use assets um, on our books as a result of the leasing standard. And so companies really need to think about where does that right of use asset get tested? What asset group does it relate to? So that's also something that people should be thinking about as they think about these economic environment trends and whether or not they have a trigger event. All right. That's helpful. And I, I think it's probably too late for this year, but I also think it's always a good reminder for companies to get ahead of their asset groups and not to be dealing with them when they're wondering if they have an impairment. But again, maybe that's something as you look ahead to 2023. So then, Kyle, let me turn to you for a moment, because I know that the SEC has been very focused on registrant reporting related to impairment. And Beth did touch on uh, foreshadowing, which I think is always helpful. But what other reminders do you have for us? Well, look, I think foreshadowing is probably the key, uh, the key point to make, and and she made it and and made it well. Um, I think you know the SEC, the way that they view and kind of thinking back to my days reviewing filings is just you know what does the market look like today? Where are we? I mean, we've talked about this numerous times, right? The macroeconomic conditions, um, geopolitical events, um, environment. I think broadly speaking, I, I look at it two ways. It's first you know, is there disclosure in the financial statements that lines up with, you know, obviously the charges that are being taken already, right? So what do those gap disclosures look like? And then I think I take the next step and say, all right, well, how did management discuss those events? How do they discuss them, disclose them in, in DNA? Um, have they provided more insights to, in plain English um, for the user to have a good understanding? And the staff certainly looks for that and thinks about that in their review. And and oftentimes you'll see comments from the staff on, hey, clarify this disclosure, provide more insights um, on that front. I think the the other – and obviously the, the second piece of it is, all right, well, what do I expect to see? So what does an investor expect to see when they pick up a filing? Um, you know, those four – those early warning disclosures – 
um, the impacts, right? And I think goodwill is probably um, the 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 easiest one for for me to 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 talk about. And it it primarily the staff you know has been pretty good about putting out their commentary on what they view as good disclosures with respect to critical accounting estimates on goodwill, right? Which is hey, if you have a reporting unit that's at risk for impairment, you certainly need to talk about it. Um, and you need to talk about it more so in the way of, hey, what areas of uncertainty are embedded within uh, the various elements in determining, um, you know, the, in the impairment analysis itself um, so that people have a feel for um, what's going to happen, what will happen or potentially could happen if there are changes in certain estimates and assumptions uh, moving forward. And obviously, with with what we've seen with rising interest rates, I think the staff is fully going to expect to see uh, that quantified um, and not just related to, to goodwill, but for any other uh, estimates and assumptions informing um, you know various accounting judgments. So I think that's probably the, the first thing is just keep in mind the staff is going to be on the lookout for you know good disclosures, not just in the footnotes, but then also in MDNA and critical accounting estimates. Um, and look, the, the whole purpose of MDNA is to highlight those trends and uncertainties so investors have insight as to what's to come. Um, and certainly the staff is always on the lookout for it. And frankly, in the years past, they would look to a, you know impairments that occurred. Mm-hmm. You know, They see disclosure, let's say, in a 10K, and they'd look back and say, well, where was the disclosure in the prior 10Qs? Um, is it, does the story line up? And, and oftentimes, you know, I think that that has been a trigger for the enforcement division to step in and take a look and say, Hey, did you, did you message to the market what you may have already known? Um, and, and do it in a, in a way that an investor can understand the impact uh, on the business. So I think that's probably the first area that, that I think companies need to be thinking about for, for this year. So Kyle, let me ask you a follow-up question on that, because uh, when I think about impairment, one of the things that comes to mind is non-GAAP. And we obviously did an episode back in December where we talked about non-GAAP comments. And then subsequently, you and Angela Ferguson and I did a, a, did a podcast episode talking about the AICPA SEC PCOB conference. And one of the things that happened at that conference was some new, I'll call it new guidance on non-GAAP. So I thought this might be a good place to just give the reminders of what maybe is different now. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point, right? Because I think when you think about some of the adjustments uh, that companies have historically made to their non-GAAP measures, impairments typically fall in that mm-hmm. bucket, restructuring charges, stock compensation, things like that, stock-based comp. Um, and and as far as what we heard from the SEC, um, I think it was very interesting um, that the staff is essentially doubled down. They, they've had the comments they've been issuing for the last couple of years. Um, they feel strongly about, you know, how companies are dealing with recurring uh, operating expenditures or expenses. Um, a lot of companies do add back a certain expenses. And I think that, that the updates that they dropped um, at the conference um, really, I think, are going to uh, probably result in a lot more comments, a lot more objections from the SEC staff on certain adjustments that companies are making. Um, One of the things that I found interesting was at the end of the day, um, the SEC always will send up their, you know, Corp Fin chief accountant and the deputy chief accountant. They'll answer questions, um, you know, that that people have been putting into the system throughout the day. And um, a couple of questions were, hey, how do you think about stock-based compensation? Um, is that something that you think would run afoul of kind of what you've codified in these CDIs, these compliance disclosure interpretations? Um, 
And the staff in, in response to that said, well, no, we, we don't view that as being something that would get caught up. Um, however, restructuring charges, maybe even impairment charges could be subject to, uh, you know, comment and potentially objection by the by the staff. Um, and I think that's one thing to keep an eye on. Um, I would advise companies to, to l- revisit their non-GAAP disclosures, walk through those adjustments and make sure that they continue to align with what is outlined in the CDI and at least be prepared for mm-hmm. comments from the SEC. All right. And I know you are an advocate of reading uh, when there's guidance like that put out. So I, I would echo that to um, it's a quick, take a It's look a quick those. read and it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. Very All right. interesting. Very helpful. So then before we move off of asset impairments, I actually have my own reminder. So kind of moving off the SEC and that it would just be important to remind people about recoverability of deferred tax assets and We originally were going to cover that in this podcast. However, I'll be sitting down with Jen Spang in a podcast that I believe will be issued next week. And so I just encourage you to go check out that podcast for talking about recoverability of deferred tax assets. And I have something to add on that point, which is a great point. Um, One of the things that we have seen, at least with respect to deferred tax assets and adjustments that companies historically have made for, let's say, evaluation allowance, right? Things like that, where they've adjusted their non-GAAP performance measures, the staff has been active in that space and objecting to companies picking and choosing pieces of it, um, especially any kind of change in the valuation allowance. So that's certainly something companies should be thinking about going into the year end because we have seen the staff outright object to those adjustments. All right. Well, thank you, Kyle, for that add on there. So, Brett, now let me turn to you. I know that when we have rising interest rates and the movements in the yield curve, entities will often amend their existing agreements to either change the length of their borrowing or maybe their interest rates, and that could lead to debt modification accounting. So what reminders would you give there? You're right, Heather. Uh, sometimes changes in rates do cause companies to want to amend debt agreements to lengthen the length of, power of the borrowing period. And can also impact the timing of when companies decide they want to modify their debt. Uh, So when the debt is is modified and the lender remains the same, we always have to think about the debt modification uh, rules. And the first step there is to consider whether the transaction is in the scope of troubled debt restructuring guidance. That guidance has changed for lenders, but it has not changed for borrowers. So borrowers on this side uh, will continue to do this evaluation and it's important because the accounting can be very different um, between a troubled debt restructuring and a non-troubled debt restructuring in some cases and can significantly uh, reduce a gain that, that may exist in those, in those transactions. So uh, a modification is within the scope of the troubled debt restructuring guidance if it meets uh, two criteria. First is uh, the borrower is in financial difficulty and there's a concession. The financial difficulty analysis is a qualitative analysis looking at, at general factors around the credit worthiness of the company. Um, and then the concession calculation is a mathematical calculation based on contractual cash flows. And in practice, we find that in, that in many cases, it's easier to start with this uh, concession calculation because the financial difficulty test is a lot more uh, subjective and, and judgmental. If you go through that test and um, the transaction is not determined to be a troubled debt restructuring, we apply what we call the 10% test, which is looking at the contractual cash flows under the prior debt uh, agreement and the modified debt agreement to determine whether the transactions is uh, accounted for as an extinguishment and new borrowing or a modification. 
All right. So then, Brett, I know you said that it's a different model for borrowers and lenders, and you gave us a great reminder for borrowers. If you're a lender, do you know what to do? Or is there anything that you should shout out for lenders as they are thinking about this as well? The whole scope of the Troubled Debt Restructuring Guidance is going away for lenders uh, because of new loan loss impairment and loan loss reserving guidance under CECL. The whole Troubled Debt Restructuring uh, analysis for a lender is going away entirely. All right, perfect. And I know we have another podcast on that, so I'll put it in the show notes in case there's some lenders listening that would like to know uh, what that all means. So let's move on then to market volatility, because I know this is another area where a lot has happened in the past year, and we continue to get questions as we look at all the volatility in the global capital markets, which in turn again, impacts valuation of financial assets and liabilities. So Brett, specific to you, what kind of questions do we get when we're thinking about investments in debt and equity securities? Yeah, starting, um, starting there, um, often we get questions anytime we're in volatile markets about whether the prices that we're seeing in those markets, uh, especially at the measurement date, are really re- reflective of fair value. And we remind companies that you can't ignore orderly transactions in determining fair value just because of market volatility. You know, the mere presence of volatility in the prices doesn't necessarily mean that those transactions occurring are not orderly and, and could be disregarded. Second reminder I would give in this area are, are for companies that have elected the fair value option for their equity method investments. Uh, sometimes when you have volatile markets, and may create a desire to revert back to the equity method to avoid that market volatility through the income statement. But we have to remind companies that that fair value option election is irrevocable um, and and you're going to have to live with it for the life of the investment. Yeah, I think that's something that sometimes people uh, don't think about when they make the election and then are sorry later. So definitely something to consider when you're doing that. All right. Where, what else do you see when it comes to volatility and decreased market values? Um, thinking about different um, different investments, debt securities. You know, the fair value of the debt security may be low, and be below amortized costs, which triggers an impairment analysis. Uh, and then for equity securities that are under the measurement alternative, decreases in prices in general is a qualitative indicator of impairment that would require uh, further analysis. I would point out, given the um, the foreign exchange rate volatility we see, that decreases in fair value due solely to exchange rates. Uh, doesn't automatically result in impairment loss. Although I'm guessing that you don't often see something that's solely due to exchange rates, but definitely something to think about. All right. And then how about just more broadly when we're thinking about fair value? Now, one thing to think about in, in the fair value hierarchy, where, where you've classified assets and liabilities in levels one, two, or three based on the observability of inputs, uh, there are cases where at initial recognition, some input to the valuation is unobservable, but it has little impact on the valuation of the asset. And so it doesn't have an impact on where that gets classified in the hierarchy. But over time, that unobservable input could have significant remeasurement impacts if markets and other assumptions change. So companies should always be reconsidering which inputs are significant as of the balance sheet date and the impact that has on the hierarchy. So your point there is basically just because at one point in time, one of them is not significant, that doesn't mean it's going to be every period. So you need to be thinking about that. That's right. 
All right. That's helpful. So, Pat, thank you for waiting patiently while we ran through all these other things. I was really hoping Brett was going <laughs> to say like backwardation or inverted when you asked him about the yield curve. I know. I kind of was too. I mean, maybe we should be quizzing him about that. But sorry, I'm going to put you on the spot instead. And I know that the volatile market and, you know, we've seen a lot of changing and declining stock prices, and that can definitely impact stock compensation accounting. And so what type of reminders would you give there? Yeah, maybe just um, it would only affect stock compensation accounting if a company chose to do something kind of in response to what's happening in in the market. You know, we obviously measure most awards on the grant date. They live their life that way. But what might happen in the current environment, stock price declines dramatically. Maybe you have some options that are underwater. You might say those aren't maybe achieving the incentive that I wanted, or there might have been performance targets associated with those awards that now are going to be much more difficult to achieve. So what could happen is companies may consider modifications to those awards, and modifications to stock compensation awards would have an accounting consequence. Um, Depends on the nature of the modification, depends on kind of whether performance targets were probable of being achieved previously or if you they weren't probable and now you reduce them so that they become probable, you will likely have incremental compensation expense to recognize for those modifications. There's a framework you have to work through to determine which type of modification it is. But in general, you're going to end up recognizing compensation expense at least equal to the value of the modified award. In some cases, you know, you might have incremental compensation. Sometimes you might have just a whole new measurement of compensation. The other thing to keep in mind in that context when you're updating or issuing new awards, um, determining the fair value, the market volatility that we're talking about obviously will have impacted not just the share price directly, but they may impact the some of the other assumptions you use in that fair value calculation. One in particular is volatility. Now, the valuation calculus would say that's an expected volatility assumption, but most companies will use a historical volatility to sort of inform that estimate of expected volatility. And when you have periods of extreme volatility, sometimes there's a tendency to say, hey, that's abnormal, that's anomalous, I don't really think that should affect my expected volatility. But the reality is that is something that happened in the market There's sort of a principle that sort of the market evidence is sort of your best evidence. And so you can't just arbitrarily exclude a period of, let's say, unusual volatility when you're making that um, estimate of your expected volatility. I guess one final point, um, some stock compensation awards may have the option of being settled in shares or cash. And again, you have to work through a framework initially to determine how you're going to classify those awards, whether they're liability classified or equity classified. But if they were originally equity classified, but then because of a modification you make to it or just a change in your expectation as a result of the current circumstances, and it looks like they'll be cash settled, you could need to reclassify those awards from equity to a liability. And that also would create a need to remeasure the award at the date of the modification. All right. Well, I think, Pat, you just summarized like an entire book of stock comp accounting in, you know, three minutes. So I definitely recommend to people if you're dealing uh, with stock compensation to check out our stock comp guide. And then we did some podcasts earlier this year with Jay Solibur and Ken Stoller. I definitely recommend you check that out. 
So, all right. So let's switch gears then and talk about inflation. And we've already talked about impairments and rising rates. And while inflation will also impact impairment, I think it would be good to focus in on some of the other areas that could be impacted. And, you know, when we look at um, annual inflation through November of 2022, it's actually 7.1%. And if you just think of the number of years, we had like zero, 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 or below 1%. It's kind of crazy. So specifically starting with revenue then, Pat, sticking with you, what reminders would you give us? So I guess as it relates to revenue, inflation potentially could be positive or negative, right? You might be able to experience rising prices, but in many cases, you may also be seeing pressure on demand as a result of those rising prices. And it's just a new dynamic. So I would say the the one thing in particular to look out for is if you have any sort of variable consideration in your revenue contracts, maybe it's tiered pricing based on volume sold. Um, it's a different economic environment than it has been. So you've really got to refresh your estimates, make sure you're thinking through what your expectations are and incorporating that into your estimates of a variable consideration. In many cases, if you have sort of a long-term supply contract for the same thing over a period of time and it's going to have variable pricing based on volume and you get into a situation where you have to change that estimate, it's likely that that's going to affect both things you've already delivered, the revenue you've already recognized, as well as affect the the revenue prospectively. So think of it like a cumulative catch-up type adjustment. Another area where you need to think a little bit about the uh, effects of inflation is if you have any uh, long-term contracts, maybe the classic example, sort of a construction contract where you've agreed a fixed price to deliver the finished building, facility, whatever it is, and now you're experiencing cost increases that are going to perhaps outstrip the, the fixed contract value you've agreed to. And if you're unable to recover that through the contract, you may need to recognize a loss provision for that contract And in that case, um, that's sort of the estimate of the full loss at completion of the contract, regardless of how far along you are in the project. And it could be a combination of actually a reduction to revenue you've already recognized, as well as an accrual for costs you recognize in the future. So it's it's not a very um, sort of happy accounting topic, but that's that's the implication. Um, And then finally, if you're using a very common method of measuring progress on long-term contracts, which is the cost-to-cost method. Obviously, you need to make sure those estimates of total costs have been updated to reflect you know, maybe a higher cost base. Otherwise, you're going to have a, an in, incorrect measure of your progress toward completion. All right. So definitely all things that if you have these contracts, you don't want to miss for your year end. And then Pat, we don't have to delve too deep into disclosure, but I'm presuming if you have these situations, disclosure is going to be very important. Yeah, I think anytime you have sort of an out of the ordinary adjustment, uh, I would say good practice is, is make sure the financial statements contain some explanation of that. Um, there's lots of other places you could get at that MDNA. And, you know, some of these at the margin might not be landscape changing, but certainly if there's a significant adjustment, say a significant loss contract, that'd be something you'd be talking about. All right. So then, Pat, you're sort of on a run, so I'm going to stick with you and talk about, I know, one of your very favorite topics, and that would be inventory accounting. So what do we think about specifically when it comes to inflation and inventory accounting? So really kind of the same 
same thing, just different side of the coin on the revenue side, right? If you've experienced increases in costs in your inventory, well, if you can't recover those in your selling prices, that puts pressure on whether that inventory cost is recoverable. The accounting construct we have is something called net realizable value, which is essentially estimating what you expect to be able to sell that inventory for in the ordinary course of business. Obviously, if it's not finished inventory, you have to contemplate the cost to complete. But if you're going to end up concluding it will be sold effectively at a loss when you sell it, you need to recognize that impairment of your inventory today. Um, That could be a function purely of cost, but it could also have this demand function, right? If uh, there's recessionary pressure, there's pressure on demand, and you're not unable to really um, penetrate the market the same way, that could also affect your estimated selling price. So kind of like kind of could hit it from both sides, the cost as well as the the price side. You know, we have seen higher inventory levels. That's been sort of commonly reported. So people might start thinking about excess inventory or obsolete inventory. And those are terms that we frequently use in accounting, but from a technical point of view, they're just a different flavor of an inventory or inventory that could be subject to a net realizable value issue. So you still have to kind of work it through that framework. I mean, if you truly are in a situation where you'll never, ever be able to sell this inventory and you can only scrap it, well, obviously that just means your estimated selling price is a lot less, right? I think those are probably the highlights as it relates to um, inventory. Maybe one thing that's more on the front end when you think about inventory costing if you have um, a manufacturing facility, there's a lot of fixed costs there. You typically absorb those into inventory. The way you absorb those is you estimate sort of a normal production volume. If you get into a period where because of pressure on demand, you're not producing as much, then more of those costs that you thought you were going to absorb are going to be left unabsorbed. Um, Sometimes in cost accounting, we look at our variances and we say, well, we should capitalize those variances, which in in that scenario would lead you to think, well, maybe I should put those costs Mm -hmm. into inventory. That would generally not be appropriate if it was kind of abnormally low demand. You know, if it was clear that your standards are kind of out of balance, maybe, but in general, a lot of those unfavorable volume variances should just fall to the bottom line as P&L or charges to the P&L in the current period. All right. So obviously great reminders there about revenue and inventory and things you need to be thinking about at year end. But again, anything like that where there's maybe adjustments or otherwise that need to be made, one of the things that comes to mind, of course, is disclosure. So Kyle, going back to you, what is the staff saying about inflation, interest rates, and other these you know macroeconomic trends and what registrants should be thinking about from a disclosure perspective? Well, I, mean, I think we've said it, um, and I think you know when I when I think back to um, just those specific areas, right? Um, inflation, interest rate changes, right? I think first thing that comes to mind for me um, is critical accounting estimates, um, right? And but but you know broadly, right? And and I'm talking about the SEC's expectations. However, you know they do look first to the financial statement footnotes. I mean, we're talking about a group of staff who are industry focused, but they are generalists. They're experts in gap and they're experts in SEC reporting. And so they're looking at the financial statements. They're then looking at how management's telling their story um, and linking the two together. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about the financial statements. Certainly the staff spends a lot of time issuing comments on financial statements. I'd say though the larger 
portion of comments on these types of topics definitely come in the MDNA space, right? Critical accounting estimates, results of operations. So, um, you know, the staff expects companies to be very detailed and robust in their disclosures. Um, you know, when you look to the the specific guidance the SEC has issued, I always look to not just what the SEC staff has said in, let's say, conferences or various speaking venues. Um, I also, you also look at the comment letters and then you also look at the dear issuer letters, right? So we have the benefit of a lot of different data points. Um, you look at what the, the staff said about COVID-19, the impacts there, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. So, so the war in Ukraine, um, companies need to be thinking about their disclosure obligations because they're all principles-based, right? And so you take a step back and you say, well, Risk factors, very principles-based. MDNA, very principles-based. Um, and so thinking about discussing this information in more detail. So, you know, if challenges with the supply chain, um, you know, pressures on margins, um, they need to really drill down and, and highlight what those changes are. And we've seen that. We've seen that in comments. The SEC asking questions about, you know, what's included in your costs of goods sold. How are you describing your margins and what's impacted your margins? Talk about volume. Talk about pricing. Have you had to change your prices? And so providing more uh, transparency around how the business is responding and evolving in these uh, difficult times. Um, and then just broadly, I just I always kind of think about risk factors. And that's an area, I think, of heightened focus of the staff, too. What are the risks? What are the, the significant risks of the business? Not the boilerplate risk factors, but the ones where, hey, look, if you are changing suppliers, that's going to have an impact, could have an impact, right? Is, is it impacting the quality of your products being sold? Is it impacting what, how the, bus, the customers view uh, you and, and, the, and the services you're, or products you're, you're providing? So I think there's a lot there. I think companies should be really ta- you know, taking a step back and making sure their risk factor disclosures are being updated and, and they're being updated real time. Well, and I think, Kyle, that just goes to the point that's been like a refrain for us is that don't just carry forward, but really make sure what you're doing is reflecting the the current environment. And, you know, as we move into our next topic, it's the recession. And I looked at that and thought, wow, this has been like sort of a negative podcast. (laughs) Although I guess last year was probably equally negative because I was thinking we were in the middle of a COVID lockdown when we were recording. So definitely... A lot for companies to think about and hopefully not all bad news for all companies. All right. So now let's turn our attention to another trend. Maybe this feels like a positive word for something that's kind of negative, which would be supply chain challenges. And clearly we've seen uh, strain on global supply chains since the beginning of the pandemic. And then we've seen other global events such as the war in Ukraine and otherwise that are impacting that. So all of these disruptions can have a direct as well as indirect impact on operations. And there's lots of financial reporting implications. So Brett, maybe going back to you, what reminders would you have related to supply chain? Heather, I'd I'd start with hedging. Um, Remember that in uh, cash flow hedging relationships, forecasted transactions must be probable of occurring in order to enter into or to continue those hedge relationships. Sometimes we're seeing that supply chain challenges affect those forecasts, and they always need to be considered when you're making that determination. And if a forecasted transaction becomes probable of not occurring or actually fails to occur, the gains and losses that are sitting in AOCI from that hedge relationship must be reclassified into earnings, and companies should be considering disclosure requirements around those. 
The second topic I would raise is around supply chain financing. And we're seeing an uptick in supply chain financing arrangements. These go by a number of different names from reverse factoring to payables finance or structured payables arrangements. And in general, companies are using these types of programs to provide their suppliers with access to payments from a third party in advance of the contractual due date of the invoice and to also to manage the company's own liquidity needs. So a couple considerations with these arrangements. First, on the balance sheet itself, um, a company entering into these arrangements need to consider whether the terms of the supplier finance arrangements has, has changed the nature of those payables uh, in the program from trade payables into debt. Oftentimes, this is a judgmental determination, and there's a list of factors to consider that's included in our financial statement presentation guide. The second issue is around disclosure of these arrangements. Uh, the FASB in September issued a new ASU covering disclosures. It doesn't impact the accounting, this payable or debt classification, or the cash flow statement. It just addresses uh, disclosure requirements for these types of arrangements. They'll require the disclosure of key terms and amounts outstanding, as well as a roll forward of the activity in these arrangements. It's going to be effective in the Q1 of 2023 for all companies in uh, interim reporting. So now is the time to get ready for that disclosure requirement. Uh, like I said, key terms and amounts outstanding will have to be disclosed, although there will be more time given to develop the roll forward analysis. All right. And then I know this is an area where we've definitely heard from investors that they're very interested in transparency. I think that's why we saw the FASB take this on and move this project relatively quickly. And in addition, when I was talking to Hillary Eastman in December about our global investor survey, just in general, issues related to supply chain were top of mind. So definitely all of these areas, I, I think, are important to focus on. And Pat, maybe that goes back to you, because another area where we're seeing this is inventory financing. So what would you say there? Yeah, and I was just going to jump in because the types of arrangements Brett was talking about, that's where you're sort of explicitly engaged with maybe a financial uh, counterparty to facilitate these programs. We've seen a fair amount of activity of just companies looking for I'll say credit, normal trade credit in maybe non-traditional means rather than having a traditional maybe revolving line of credit. There are, call them financial intermediaries out there who are actually just getting involved almost as like a procurement agent. But there are elements of those arrangements that look like financing. There are some interesting questions for both the um, ultimate purchaser of the goods in those cases as well as those financial intermediaries in terms of whether they actually become a buyer and reseller of, of physical goods versus just providing finance. Sometimes it's not an explicit interest rate. It's some sort of a, a discount or transaction fee. So we're just seeing more activity perhaps because of you know just looking to manage your overall cost of working capital, looking for, again, financing in a lot of different places. So just important to really understand what the company's um, role in those arrangements are and make sure the, the reporting reflects kind of those, those roles. All right. So final topic for today. I feel like, you know, we did this last year. I feel like these topics are more negative than last year. Maybe not. Maybe we're talking about the same things. I think we were in lockdown last year still with COVID. So maybe it's actually more positive. But in any event, 
final topic is recession. And as we think about the continued downturn in economic conditions, it puts pressures on margins, as Pat was talking about. And then that ultimately triggers restructuring decisions related to businesses, product lines, headcounts, and otherwise. And so, Beth, I know in your area of our national office, you spend a lot of time focused on business combinations, but the other side of a business combination is often a business disposition. Uh, so what do you think about if you're a company that is looking at divesting a portion of its business? Yeah, well, a decision to dispose of either an asset or a business could have significant accounting and reporting implications, right? First, we have to think about when do we meet the health for sale criteria? And there's several criteria within that guidance that have to be met. But some of the ones that require some analysis and judgment are have management committed to the plan And sometimes the question is, is management the one that has the appropriate authority to commit to the plan? So you might need board approval, so you have to look to the board, or you may even need, if it's a large disposition, shareholder approval. And so you need to obtain that before you could get to held for sale. The second criteria that sometimes has judgment is the sale has to be probable within one year. And so that can require some analysis. You know, have you had other sales fall through? What's your history of being able to get these things consummated? But let's say you meet held for sale, then that has implications, right? First, held for sale has its own impairment test. So we're going to record the asset group at the lower of carrying value or fair value, less cost to sell. We are going to cease depreciation and amortization of the assets in the asset group. And we're going to have to think about balance sheet presentation. Those assets and liabilities need to be reflected as assets to be held for sale, both current and non-current, and liabilities that are held for sale, both current and non-current. So those are things to think about. So before you go on, and maybe this is related, when you say you have to classify amounts, um, both your current and non-current as um, held for sale, do you classify the amounts from last year as well, or is it only the current period? So it depends. So it's the current period if you are simply in held for sale, but if you are held for sale and also meet the DISCOP criteria then you need to do all comparative balance sheets. Oh, perfect lead into the next question about discops. Sure. Go ahead. Right. So to meet the criteria of discops, you have to have two things, right? You have to have a strategic shift and it has to have a major impact on the business. So those are two separate things that have to be assessed, right? This criteria, if met, does trigger additional requirements from a presentation perspective, right? We're now going to have to think about our income statement, and we're going to have to take items that are in discontinued operations and show them separately, sort of at the bottom of the income statement, if you will. You'll need to recalculate EPS because you need to show that both for continuing and discontinued operations. There's some tax analysis that needs to be done and the balance sheet that I mentioned. And certainly, last but not least, the cash flow statement has also an option of how you reflect um, discontinued operations on that cash flow statement. And then from an overall financial reporting obligation Right, because it is a retrospective standard, there's a couple of things companies would think about. If they have a discontinued operation and now they've reflected it in their E10Q and they want to go to the market and use a new registration statement or an amended registration statement, that's likely a material change that will require them to recast their annual periods and put those on file. And then the other thing to think about, if we have a significant disposition that trips a 20% test, you need to think about an AK needs to be filed uh, within four business days with the related Article 11 pro formas. 
All right. That's great reminders. And Beth, anytime you talk about SEC, I'm reminded that you did spend time in our SEC group because you really do talk about with so much more authority, I think, than the rest of us that are more more dabblers. So thanks for those reminders. And then, Pat, going back to you in the areas of compensation, then, you know, when we have restructuring, what are some of the things that you would think about from like a severance or maybe employee benefits perspective? Yeah, so if we think about severance costs, the big question there is the timing of when to recognize those severance benefits, and it it can depend and and vary uh, depending on the nature of how those benefits are conveyed to the employee. If you take a classic arrangement where maybe the company has an idea that they want a reduction in force, but they'd like to maybe go through and see if they can solicit some voluntary uh, terminations initially, they may make an offer to employees and say, if you agree to terminate, here are the benefits you'll get. In that case, you you won't have a basis to accrue those costs until the employees or you know an employee or group of employees irrevocably accepts that offer. So until the employee accepts, you don't have a basis to accrue those costs. Even if you sort of have this backstop idea that, well, if we don't get enough people, we're going to go through an involuntary plan, you wouldn't have a basis to accrue. In that case, again, if there's special termination benefits, until you've basically communicated what the benefit arrangement is to the affected group of employees. And similar to the health for sale stuff, you have to have a specific plan. It has to be appropriately approved in the organization. But in that case, because it's involuntary, obviously it's not a matter of employee acceptance, but it is important to have made the communication to the employees. And then there's a third type of benefits that we see sometimes, maybe a little less common these days, but Companies may have an ongoing severance plan that basically says, look, if you're involuntarily terminated, you'll get you know, one week's salary for every year of service or something to that, uh, that effect. If there's a communicated plan, either it's sort of actually written down or you have a past practice of doing that, in those cases, the idea is, well, the employees have a general understanding of that benefit. Their service has sort of entitled them to that benefit. So as soon as it becomes probable that those benefits will be paid, so the company's made a decision, maybe they're expecting as they work through this restructuring, they'll be closing a facility. Even if they haven't announced it yet, you could still have a basis to accrue those benefits because the plan exists. The one other point I would make here, if we cycle back to the um, voluntary or the special or one-time termination benefits, in those circumstances, sometimes there'll be a future service requirement for the employees to actually um, be entitled to those benefits, sort of like a stay bonus effectively. In those cases, you would have to accrue those costs over that remaining service period. So rather than accruing it all at once at that date of acceptance or date of communication, you'd have to spread it over that future period, which usually companies would like to avoid. Usually when they're taking these actions, they like to accrue everything at once and get it behind them. But that's not always the the case under the accounting framework. Yeah, Pat, maybe if I could jump in, because you mentioned reduction of space, right? If you're re- reducing your headcount, often you find out you have excess space and capacity. So we are seeing companies consider or actually entering into subleases for excess space. And when they do that, it's important to remember that probably changes your asset group, that you're testing that right of use asset because the interdependencies of the cash flows have changed. It's no longer being used in your operations in that asset group, but rather the cash flows are being generated from sublease income. And so it's likely its own asset group and needs to be thought about from an impairment perspective. All right. So those are good reminders. And I think definitely this is an area of gap that you really want to make sure you understand the gap 
and you understand your plan because it's going to make a big difference, little details in terms of which period you're recognizing some of these costs. So good reminder there. All right. So then Beth, another place you brought up your um, asset groups, but another thing that could be impacted that may not be top of mind is segment reporting. And because restructurings often may impact segments. So what do companies need to be thinking about in a restructuring with segment disclosures? Yeah, that's right, Heather. I mean, when it's, anytime you have significant shifts in sales or profitability, you could impact your operating segments. A couple of things to think about, right? First of all, if you have a bunch of operating segments that you've aggregated into a reportable segment, to do that, you have to first have similar economic criteria. And if one operating segment is maybe moving in a negative direction and the other isn't, you may not meet that similar economic criteria anymore. And so aggregation may no longer be appropriate. So Beth, let me jump in. I just have a question. So are you then reminding people, I guess, for lack of a better word, that this is something they need to be looking at each period when they're doing their segment reporting? That's right. I mean, segment reporting is not a set it and forget it. Anytime there are changes in things like the CODM, your business structure, your management team, the economic environment, you do need to reassess your segments and make sure you have the appropriate ones disclosed. Okay. I feel like people, they know they need to when they change their reporting to the CODM, but otherwise they may not be thinking about it. So that's very helpful. So sorry, go on. I know you had more to share. Sure. So you also want to consider whether any segments now rise to the need of separate disclosure. So there is in the standard a 10% test, right? So if it previously immaterial segment for some reason is now material as a result of changes that would need to be separately disclosed as a reportable segment and also ensuring that you have 75% of your external revenues covered by reportable segments is important to reconsider. And then anytime you're in this environment where you're thinking about reducing headcount or potentially selling assets or a business, you may be changing how the CODM is going to look at the business. You may be changing the direct reports to the CODM. So those will also trigger a need to reassess your segments. And then maybe since we're on the topic of segments, maybe just for our listeners to remember that the FASB has issued an exposure draft on additional segment disclosures. Comments are due December 20th, but some of the key additional disclosures that'll be required are the title and position of the CODM, a disclosure of significant segment expenses, which is a, an additional disclosure related to a segment expense that is included in your measure of profitability and either also in the CODM pack or easily derivable from the CODM pack. So for instance, if you're a company and you use gross margins as your segment measure of profitability, the CODM pack has sales and gross margins. So cost of goods sold is easily derivable. So if you believe that's a significant segment expense, that will now need to be disclosed. The other thing that this guidance is going to make clear is that single segment companies need to have the disclosures as it relates to the segment standard and Finally, companies are now going to be permitted to include multiple measures of segment profit or loss. Yes, that one I think people may be more excited about than some of these other changes. So definitely good reminders, and it'll be interesting to see what the FASB does with the comments and where this project goes. So let's move on then, because another area that I think there's a lot of focus on in a potential recession or recession related to receivables. So Brett, how do you think about estimates related to receivables in this economic environment? So Cecil, the Cecil model itself requires companies to always assess current conditions and reasonable and supportable forecasts when they develop an estimate of expected credit losses on their on their receivables. This estimate usually requires a lot of judgment um, and probably more so in times of economic uncertainty. 
companies with relatively simple portfolios of trade receivables uh, often use an approach to estimate losses using their historical loss rates um, based on days outstanding. And companies that do this um, need to make sure they're considering whether these historical loss rates require adjustment for the potential that a recession could negatively impact a customer's ability to pay. All right, good reminders. And you know that actually reminds me, we have been talking in the comment letter series that we did in November and December, uh, just this overall trend of don't just carry forward You know what you've done in the past. And I feel like all these reminders that you guys are giving right now are all places where don't just carry forward what you did, but make sure you're really thinking about it. And I, I do think in the pressure of year end, that can get very difficult. So um, just that's, I guess, a reminder for me and for the benefit of our listeners, all of my uh, specialists here are nodding. So they, I guess, agree with me. Another area that I almost wish we had started with, because I do think it's such an important area at year end, and it's something that really, again, really can impact what period uh, things get recorded in would be subsequent events. So Pat, this I know, another special topic of yours. So what can you share with us? Well, it is sort of the stuff that happens after the period ends. So it feels like maybe coming at the end. (laughs) There you go. Oh, I guess very, very, very fair point there. All right. So with that, then, what can you share with us about subsequent events? So we have two types of subsequent events, although the standard now doesn't call them type one and type two anymore. Some of the people with gray hair like me might remember that terminology, but they're referred to now as recognized subsequent events or non-recognized subsequent events. And so the distinction is recognized subsequent events means you obtain new information about events or circumstances that actually existed at the balance sheet date and should therefore affect the measurement of assets and liabilities as of the balance sheet date. So those would need to be taken into account. I would say maybe a couple of classic examples there. And just because of the way the accounting model works, we talked a little bit about inventory earlier, this idea of net realizable value. It's sort of estimated selling prices in the ordinary course of business. Well, if you have evidence in the post-balance sheet period prior to issuance that those estimated selling prices are different that should be taken into account in your year-end net realizable value assessment, positive or negative. You might determine that an allowance you thought you needed, you don't, or vice versa. You may say, look, I'm starting to sell things at a loss, so my my estimate clearly wasn't right, which is very different, by the way, than some of our fair value-based measures Mm -hmm. where you take a very hard cut at the balance sheet date, right? The other one that comes up pretty frequently is any sort of a contingent obligation or contingent liability that exists because of circumstances that happened in many cases, balance sheets years and years before even, but you're still subject to evaluating things that develop relative to those contingencies in that post-balance sheet period and perhaps settlement of a litigation uh, post-balance sheet's a classic example where that would get pushed back to the balance sheet date. Those are a couple examples. I mean, obviously, those are not um, all inclusive. There could be other things. Um, I think the, the debt models may be a little different. I don't know, Brett, if you want to jump in here on, on that. Yeah, I think there's a couple times where um, post-balance sheet date events affect the balance sheet classification. Uh, one is where short-term borrowings have been refinanced after the balance sheet date and on a long-term basis. That would be reflected on, on the balance sheet, as well as if uh, – in some cases, a covenant waiver is provided after the balance sheet date. But here, you can get um, debt that's uh, you can get debt to non-current only if it's probable that the same or more restrictive covenants will be met in one year following the balance sheet date. 
So um, anytime you've got those types of covenant waivers, it's important to make sure to look at the guidance. Pat, how about non-recognized or type 2? Although when you were saying type 1 and type 2, I was thinking lots of um, children of people in this room who are studying accounting or accountants. I'm very curious if they've ever heard of type 1 and type 2, so we may have to, to ask them that. But non-recognized, use the current terminology. Yeah, so non-recognized subsequent events are really everything else. Um, and there's not really a, a clear limitation on, um, you know, sort of, What's a subsequent event? And I guess the only real consequence would be, do I need to disclose it or not? And that becomes fairly judgmental. Certainly, if that event is going to have a material impact on the financial statements of the ensuing period, you know, either a, a major loss that arose in the ensuing period, or maybe it's a positive income, um, maybe post-balance sheet acquisitions, all of those types of things that are fairly significant – Certainly, disclosure of those is warranted. I think the the standard refers to, you know, to the extent that uh, omitting those disclosures would make the financial statements misleading. So, you know, these are sort of important events. Um, there are cases where the event could be so significant that you might even want to include sort of a pro forma type disclosure of the impact of that subsequent event. But again, it, it becomes very facts and circumstances dependent. So, Pat, I was hoping you were going to give the classic example if you had a fire in your warehouse in January that you would not have to push that back. So. That's correct, because those conditions and circumstances didn't exist. At the balance right. Sheet. That's an easy one to, to know how to account for it. So for all of these topics that we covered today, I know that there may be follow-up questions. And we do have some very helpful um, frequently asked questions on accounting for things in uncertain economic times that uh, we will include some links in the show notes because I do think those are very helpful uh, for people kind of working through some of these and then pointing to other applicable guidance. And I guess the other thing I'd say, sitting here thinking as we were running through this, Pat made a reference to gray hair, but I think sitting in the same room as the four of you is probably the most accounting knowledge I have ever been in the same room with. So it's really nice to be here with, you know, such so much knowledge and and information. And I just appreciate you guys bringing this to the podcast. So thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.